Well, good morning, family. I'm so glad that we could gather this morning. I missed you guys. Um, I've missed being able to join in song together, worshiping the only one who's worthy of adoration and praise. And I've looked forward to the Lord showing us more of himself. Because that's where true fulfillment is, is knowing him more. So let's just ask for that together. Okay? Father, thank you again for this moment that we have before you. Knowing that it's by the blood of your son, Jesus, that we can come before your throne. Thank you, God. And Father, we just ask that above all that's said today, God, that you would be glorified. And we do pray that the Holy Spirit would move among us. Help us even right now to recognize our desperate need for the Spirit to move. I pray that you would help us all, Lord, to focus on your truths. We trust your promise that your word will not return void. So God, may your word be spoken clearly. And God, may it impact lives today. I need you, God. We need you, God. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been several weeks And that part three has just been hanging out there for me. And for me, in my flesh, that's a very big battle because I want it to be done, (laughs) just honestly. But um, I'm thankful that God has chosen in his wisdom to use earthen vessels. And uh, I'm trusting that he will do a miracle through me by just helping me to get out of the way and helping me to better understand the truths that he's helped me walk through early this morning and uh, trusting that it's going to be a help to those that he's gathered here and to those that would listen. I don't really know why, but um, a couple of weeks ago when I thought it was going to be in sequence part one, two, three, I just felt driven that I, you need to go back and look at one and two again before you go to that, that third perspective. And I was like, we just went through that, you know, and, but then now we didn't just go through that because it's been a couple of weeks. So I guess God knew, right? So we're going to go through, um, walking again together, considering the following two questions that, that kind of spurred this whole, discussion and this thought and this seeking in the word together. The two questions are these. The first question was, are you ashamed of Jesus? And then the second one was, will you deny him? And just the reminder that these questions just aren't just out of thin air. They're from the word because they're things that Jesus has made statements about. So let's look at those statements together. Uh, the first statement is Mark chapter 8, verse 38, and this is Jesus speaking. 
First, when you think of ashamed, I mean, do you have, what comes to your mind if you're ashamed of somebody? It's kind of like you tuck your head and you don't want to be associated with them and or they've done something that you feel like is a poor reflection on you. People are going to not accept you in a certain way because of that person being ashamed. Is that kind of along the lines of what you think of ashamed is, maybe? Okay, so as as we read this verse, as Jesus is talking, and he's talking about ashamed, is this how we view Jesus? For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus said, and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And that is going to happen. Jesus is going to come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That will happen. And if individuals live life ashamed of Christ, he says when he comes back, he will be ashamed of them. He also mentioned uh, something similar to that about denying him. The second question, will you deny him? Let's look at that together. Matthew chapter 10. Verses 32 through 33. Again, Christ speaking. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So confessing before men making known that you know who this is, making known that the truth of who Jesus Christ is, it is true, confessing that to individuals that we're around. But if we don't, if we just deny, Christ said that he's going to deny those individuals. So over those several weeks ago gatherings that we had, we had those two questions. And then the thought came to try to look at those two questions from three different perspectives, three different individuals, and how they might how they might wrestle with those questions about, am I really ashamed of Jesus, and will I deny him? Because if I am ashamed and I do deny, there's some serious consequences going on there, right? So the first perspective that we looked at was from a concerned unbeliever, someone who wasn't yet saved, um, but they're they're concerned about that thought. If if they were to be approached with those questions, hey, are are you ashamed of Jesus? Or hey, are you are you denying Jesus? That makes them uncomfortable. That makes them go, mm, I don't know. And if I am, what's that mean? Okay, that's the, that's the first perspective we were wanting to look at from. And uh, there were some things that we we walked through together, and we're just going to walk through them again quickly. I'm trusting that just as we read the word, that the Spirit will clarify it, okay? So let's be focused, let's be attentive, and let's look to the word to define itself and to clarify itself in thought as we're walking through this. One of the things that we were reminded of from that unbeliever's perspective was the reality that one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That will happen. That's from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. 
and it reads, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Those are truths. We will die at some point, and then we will face judgment. Why? Because that's what God says will happen. And then the second point that we read was, or we thought about was, we will be judged according to our works, what we do in this life, in light of his holy law. And we talked about the holy law being the Ten Commandments that he gave, right? The structure that, that he'd set forth, you do these things, I'll do these things. And those who are not found in the book of life at that judgment day, it says they will be cast into hell. And that's from Revelations chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And again, this is the revelation that John saw, right? Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. So the book of life is the one we're we're particularly focused on right now at this point in judgment here. It says, and the dead were judged according to what? They were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So all the things that they had done in life, all those things were written down. God knows all things, right? God remembers all things. Nothing is hidden from his sight. So this is a reality. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. No one's escaped, right? If someone has passed away, that does not mean it's over. That means there's coming a point in time where they're going to stand at the judgment seat of God. And says, and they were judged each according to his works, not someone else's, what that own individual did. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. For an individual to not be written in the Lamb's book of life, you see the punishment. It's black and white. And that's not a a light thing. I, I can't think of anything more consequential than that reality, being separated from God Almighty, being cast into the lake of fire for eternity. So the next point we talked about was the law, which remember we talked about were the Ten Commandments. The law was given to prove that we are sinners and that we stand before guilty before God. And that's found in Romans chapter 3, 19 through 20. So the purpose of the Ten Commandments, why did that come about? Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law is given to make people stop trying to justify themselves and to prove that no one can be justified before God based on the law, okay? To stop every mouth, that the whole world becomes guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No one can do deeds in a manner that will justify them before God. It just will not happen. It says it can't happen. And why? 
That's not the purpose of the law. The, the purpose of the law was not to show you a route to be right with God. It was to, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the Ten Commandments was to prove to us that we're sinful. Right? And then the next point was the law shows us our need for a Savior. That's Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our teacher, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the law's purpose was to show us that we were sinful, to teach us what that meant and the consequences of being a sinner before a holy God, but then to grant us a desperate need for for saving, right? That we might be justified by faith. So then... We talked about the gospel. The gospel, the message of, of the gospel is good news. And that good news is that Jesus died to save us from our sins. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. And we talked about the gospel couldn't be good news to someone who didn't realize they need saved, right? But to someone who understands that they're sinful, that there is a major consequence coming before a righteous God, you need saved from it. And there's only one way. There's only one way to be saved before a holy God, and that is this, the gospel, the good news. Romans 10, 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. What word? What's it talking about? Like a special word? No. That is the word of faith, which we preach. It's about believing, right? Believing. Believing what? That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's There's nothing cryptic about that. It's a matter of truly understanding, I'm a sinner, I need saved, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that God raised him from the dead, when he died in my place. It says, if you believe that, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Aren't you thankful for that? It's not based on rank. It's not based on popularity. It's based on, do you recognize that you need a savior? And are you putting your hope and your faith in him? Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that was the big thing, because remember Old Testament time, God had a chosen people, the Hebrews, right? All the Gentiles were outside. They were far away from the promises of God. But by Jesus Christ dying in place of sin, God brought us near right? So that was the first perspective from a concerned unbeliever, that reality that death is coming, then judgment is coming. Judgment is encased in everything we've done in our life. It's all known. God knows every little thing. And it's going to be based on his ten, his ten commandments, that standard of the law, which no one can meet. 
The purpose of the law was that no one could meet it. It was to prove that we needed a Savior. And then the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And it's not that they had to do something to be right before God. It's that they had to humble themselves and recognize there was no hope apart from Christ. The only way to stand before a righteous God is by Jesus standing there before him, before me in my place, by him dying. And then God the Father seeing me as righteous because of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's where an unbeliever has to be brought. An unbeliever has to be brought to the point of understanding there's no hope without Christ. But then the moment that that realization happens, all oh, the beauty of the message of the gospel, that it's not a work salvation, i got to do all these right things so that then God will accept me. It's humbling yourself, laying everything down, and putting all of your trust, all of your faith, and all of your hope solely on Christ, believing that he died on the cross for your sins. What a wondrous message. What a glorious, beautiful thing, right? That's why, that's why we can sing songs about the beauty of the cross. When the world would just see carnage, right? We see a lamb that was slaughtered willingly, hung on the cross, He suffered, he was beaten, and he died willingly. Why? Out of love. That is a Savior. That is the only Savior. That was perspective number one. The second perspective we had was looking at those two questions, am I ashamed of Jesus? Will I deny him? from the thought of someone who claims to be a Christian, but truly they're deceived and they're pretending to be a believer. And that's a hard one. That scares a lot of people. And you know what? It should. Where did we get that from? What, how, how does that even happen? But the point was, many individuals who claim to be followers of Jesus will one day be rejected by him. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Again, this is Jesus. 21. Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, what day? The day of judgment, okay? Many will, t- will say to me, Jesus says, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? All these things, right? I did all these things for you, God. And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, I can remember growing up, reading that verse and going, oh my goodness, 
What else can I do? And you immediately start finding yourself on that path of justifying yourself by what you do. Okay? It can't happen that way. But the truth is, the other flip of the coin, I guess, is never give any any other consideration to your faith. It's, well, I prayed a prayer. I got saved. They told me I got saved. I'm good. And then not caring about it anymore. That's the other side of it, right? And I'm so thankful God gave us direction in his word about how to handle those things. And the the next point we, we saw was we are all called to examine and test ourselves to see if the faith we claim to have in Jesus is genuine. Do you believe that? We're all called to examine that. And that's in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And it says, examine yourselves, <clears throat> examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. How? Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. So we're called to step back, examine. Hey, I, I say I'm a believer. I, I need to be testing myself. Is that really true or not? And then, wait a minute, unless indeed you are disqualified. Again, that puts you right back in that realm of some people saying they're good to go, but in reality they're not. So then you've got to step back and start thinking about truly how is one justified before God? And that next point was we cannot justify ourselves before God by doing what the law commands. People try, right? People try to live by the commandments, by the, by the law. But what was the purpose of the law? To prove that we can't do it, right? And Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? By faith. By faith in who? By faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, Paul's saying. Even we've believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by what? By faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be, sat- shall be justified. That's cut and dry, right? So if you find yourself in a position where you're telling me that Jesus said that On the day of judgment, there's going to be people who claim to be believers, and he's going to tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. That's going to happen? Yes, it is going to happen. What do you do about that then? If that bothers you, and you're going, is that going to be me? The first thing to avoid is trying to earn your way there. Right? You can't be justified by actions. We're only justified by what? By faith in who? By faith in Jesus Christ. By faith that he is the Son of God. By faith that he did come to die in my place on the cross and pay the sin penalty that I never could. By faith that he died and then he was buried and then he rose again. By believing in faith, that's how I'm justified. Not by works of the law, not by trying to do the right things for God to make me right before him, but by Faith in believing that the Savior he sent is Jesus 
and there's no other way. So that's, that's the part right there. We can't, you, that's the stumbling block. It is. That's where people stumble. They try to justify themselves by how they act and what they do, which doesn't matter how you act and what you do. Yeah, it does matter, right? We're called to live a holy life, but not so that we are righteous before God. We're called to live a holy life as a Christian so that we reflect the one who saved us. So the next point after thinking about that, no no man can be justified by the law. The next point was having faith to believe and trust in Jesus unto salvation is a gift of God. And when God helped me see this, it, it's just wondrous if you think about it like this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. See if you can see this. For by grace you have been saved. So it's the grace of God. It's God's active hand in saving people. Okay, By grace you've been saved through what? By, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, and what? And that faith, that and that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. That is, salvation is of the Lord. Do you see it? For someone to have faith in Jesus It's an active work of the grace of God. And that faith that he gives is a gift. Otherwise, people could be boastful about it. Wow, look at what I delved into the Bible and figured out, and I've got this clinched, right? Man, I wish these silly goofs over here could figure it out, but uh, I got it figured out. That's not what it's about. And when you come to to um, examine yourself from that perspective, that knocks pride Right? Square on its face. Right? The only place you can be when you recognize that faith that you have in God is a gift from God is humbly bowing before him saying, thank you, God, for this gift to believe in you. Thank you. The next point was every true believer will see the outworking of fruit of the Spirit in their lives displayed through their obedience to the good works that the Father has prepared for them to do. So it's not just faith and believing in Jesus, and I'm good to go. Putting all my hope in Jesus, and I'm going to live any way I want to. It doesn't matter. That's not true. Now, you could easily get into the realm of, I'm going to live for Jesus, and you could slip right back into being justified by how you're living. It can't happen. Okay, You're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, but we're still called to live a holy life so that we might glorify and honor him, the one who saved us. So that's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we, this is talking as believers, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. God has things for us to do, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How much are we missing, guys? Man, how much are we missing out on walking in the works that God has forced to work in? So it matters. That examination of, okay, I claim faith alone in Christ, 
I can't be justified by what I do. It's solely on believing in Jesus. But then God has a purpose for me. There are works that he's called me to. Am I about those works? That can only happen when you're examining, right? The next point is we're warned by James of the necessity of works accompanying our faith. And this is a big, um, there's groups out there on this, guys, okay? But I feel like it's so well balanced by the help of the Spirit because we do need works in our lives, okay? They do have a place. And this is in James chapter 2. It's going to be two verses. It's, it's verse 17 and then verse 26. See if you can catch what James is talking about here. Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. Now, the person who's solely relying on faith alone, and I don't have to care about anything else, that's a kick in the gut. Because you're going to say, dead? Wait a minute, how? What? That doesn't... Listen to what he's saying. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And I'm sorry, but this is a picture I have to help me see the body without the spirit is dead. If something happened to my arm and it got cut off and then it's just laying there on the floor, right? That's a piece of that body that's dead, okay? If your spirit is not in your body, this body is dead, okay? So when you're looking at it from that perspective, James is all out on, hey, there's got to be works in your life if you're really claiming faith. There's got to be works, And then uh, then you have people that are wrestling with that. Because the balance between walking in faith, being justified by faith alone in Jesus, and then walking in those works that God has called us and prepared us to walk in, he's, he's got things planned for us, that's a balance that can only be kept right by the Spirit. That's the only way. But it does constantly um, draw from examining ourselves, testing ourselves to see if we truly are of the faith. And there's a lot of people who say, no, that's not a good idea. Because then you start getting doubt, and then that's not how you're supposed to live. I feel sorry for people who don't examine. And let me just tell you right now, if there's, I'm going to say it like this, when there's points in your walk with God when you question your faith, praise God. Because that questioning should not drive you to despair unless you're justifying yourself before God by your actions. And then hopefully that will just plummet it and make you realize that there's no hope there. It should, it should drive you back to the hope of faith in Christ alone to save you. That's where we're justified. That's the only place we're justified. Not by works of the law. But once we're back at that point, then it's back to the reality of God's called us to works. From living by justification of faith in Jesus saving me, living that out in the works that he's called me to. That's the balance. 
That's the walking by the Spirit that we're called to live every day. Not walking by the flesh, living for self. It's dying to self, dying to the flesh, dying to all the temptations that are inevitably everywhere. This whole world is fallen, brothers and sisters. It's a fallen world. But yet this is the only way, this is the only place we can walk by faith. And and trust that he's going to supply the needs that we have to survive. This is the only place, this is the only realm where that reality exists. Because someday, when we're not here and we're in heaven, faith will be sight. Okay, so walking by faith, not by sight, only happens here. So, I think uh, another point that was made was, Jesus said an individual's fruit or their works reflects who they are. Now, if Jesus says that, that means something, right? Listen to what he said, Matthew seven sixteen through 20. And he is talking specifically about false teachers here. But if you think about it, a Christian, a quote-unquote Christian, someone who claims to be a Christian, but then they live a life that is not a reflection of God, it's similar, right? So this is what Jesus said, uh, starting in verse 16 of chapter 7. You will know them by their fruits, these false teachers. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? I think about the uh, the, uh, the thorn bushes that we got out in the field. I, you're not going to grab nice fruit off of that, or those trees that when you see the the uh, the spikes on them make you think about what the cross of thorns, you know, the the crown of thorns really look like out in the field. Thistle trees is that what that is? I think black locust. Yeah. So, but but just thinking about that, men don't gather grapes from thorn bushes and figs from thistles. Even so. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Mm. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. The false teachers, the false pretending believers that live a life in this manner, will be cut down. They will be the individuals who stand before God in judgment, and he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you, you, you who practice lawlessness. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying there. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So just kind of a side note, um, we aren't anyone's judge, right? We're not called to judge other people, but the reality is, the way people display and act, you can't not see that. And if you have a professing brother or sister in Christ and you see them acting and living in such a manner, are we to avoid that? We're called in love to go to that person. In love, we're called to go to them and say, hey, after examining this big log I've got in my eye, knowing that I'm not perfect and I still struggle with sin every day, I love you and I'm seeing this reflected in your life. What's going on? How are you doing? That is family. Don't you desire that? Don't you desire to be able to be humble enough to receive someone coming to you out of love saying, Dusty, 
this doesn't look good. You're not reflecting Christ when you're doing this. And all that God would give me, the humbleness to confess that sin before him, trust him that Jesus paid the penalty for that sin and that Jesus and and that God the Father cleanses me from that sin. He doesn't remember it anymore, but that would turn my heart away from whatever idol that is at the moment and drive me back to the cross, drive me back to the hope that I have by faith alone in Jesus Christ. The next point was the deceived believer's practice of life, their fruit, their work, what they present. Okay, Again, this is the deceived believer, someone who's pretending to be a Christian. It's rejected and condemned by Jesus because of their lifestyle of lawlessness. And we talked about lawlessness was sin. And that's Matthew 7, verse 23, the last thing that Jesus said. And then I will declare to them, those who said they did all these works in my name, I never knew you. Depart from you who practice lawlessness. Again, examining oneself. If in your life, when in your life, you stumble into sin. No one is perfect. We're all going to battle sin every day we're on this earth until God calls us home. It's a battle, right? This is not talking about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. This is talking about an individual whose whole life is given to practicing lawlessness. There is no conviction of the Holy Spirit prompting you to repent. It's an individual who is completely calloused. There is nothing there that is drawing them back to repentance. They're just living a sinful life. And they're living it in the context, in the picture of someone being a believer. That's what this is talking about. Those are the individuals that when they stand before the judgment seat of God, he's going to tell them, I never knew you. Can you imagine that day? That is going to happen. And it says many, many on that day. We've got to get away from, oh, let's just be tolerant. That is not loving. If we see people in church and they're living a life of sin, they're practicing lawlessness, and if we ignore it, we are not loving. But thankfully, it is not up to us to convince someone to change it. We're tools. We are vessels that God uses if we are willing to help the Spirit flowing and moving through us, giving us wisdom and how to, how to talk, having the humility that we're supposed to have, having that self-examination of our own lives, right? Presented in humility. But it's God. Listen to this. Here is our hope. If you find yourself in that place, in that desert place, and you're like, I can't get to God. I can't get to Him. No matter what I do, no matter what I read, no matter how much time I do this, no matter, no matter, no matter, no matter, no matter, I can't get to him. Does that happen? There are seasons in our lives where it's a drought. And it's a drought to despair of all things apart from him. 
Don't you see it in the Psalms? So many of the Psalms, they're just crying out to God. And he's like, aren't you there? Don't you hear me? This is not foreign to a walk of a believer. It's avenues that God allows us to tread, to to walk through, that we might better understand our sinfulness that we still struggle with, but also have a clearer appreciation and adornment of who he is. But how do we get back? The last point was, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. (laughs) Oh, thank you, God. Yet his wrath awaits those who harden themselves in unrepentance. Picture this. Look at this. This is the word telling us this. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And it reads, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and long-suffering, not not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You who are living a life of lawlessness. Do you despise his goodness, his forbearance, and long-suffering? Do you despise that? But in accordance with your hardness of your impenitent, your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up, storing up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, that great white throne judgment day we talked about. An individual who lives a life of callousness to sin disregarding any promptings of the Holy Spirit, drawing them to conviction of sin, disregarding that, disregarding that, disregarding that, they're storing up wrath. I see that in my kids. I love my kids. But there are times they know they're not supposed to be doing something. They keep on doing it. They keep on doing it. They keep on doing it. They keep on doing it, and it's like the it's getting ratcheted up. You know what I'm talking about? There's coming a day of judgment, right? A parent to a child is such a small, opaque picture to a sinner, to a righteous, holy God. But that's what it says. It says, but in accordance with your hardness and your unrepentant heart, You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. All those actions are going to have consequences. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good. There's an aspect of those good works there. Do you see it? If you're by patient endurance doing good works, that's the fruit of trying to to live out in humility and dependence and walking by faith the things God has called us to do, they seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what awaits them? Indignation and wrath and tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil on the Jew first, and also the Greek. Every man. If you're walking a life of lawlessness, even if you're claiming that you're good with God, this disproves your theory. 
Okay? The word of God is truth. And I'm telling you that these two perspectives we looked at, the, the concerned unbeliever and the deceived pretending believer, they both find themselves facing a common eternal consequence. And that is they stand condemned before the judgment throne of God and the righteous judge will render unto them each according to their deeds, resulting in indignation, wrath, tribulation, anguish, and ultimately being cast into the lake of fire. How do we know that? Because that's what the word says. And I plead with you this morning, if God in his goodness, in his forbearance, and his long-suffering is leading you to repentance, if he's mercifully shown light on the darkness of your hidden sins, and by his word, the very words we've been reading today, is convicting you and making you aware of the eternal punishment that awaits you because of your sins, I plead with you, confess your sins to him. Cry out to him to save you from your sins and the judgment that awaits. Cry out to him. It says those who call upon him. Those who call upon him will be saved. Those who call in faith that there's no other hope. God, you've shown me my sin. I stand condemned you. I can't, I stand condemned before you. If you call me out of this life, out of this world, before that's right, I'm going to stand before you at the judgment seat and I have no grounds. I'm guilty. And you tell me that if I'm guilty before you on that day, there is no hope. I can't justify myself before you. Even I said I did this for you, Jesus. I cast out demons. I prophesied. I did all these mighty works in your name. It's not going to matter. Man will not be justified by works. Only by faith in Jesus Christ. So I just, I plead that that is clear this morning. Because there's no other way. There's no other way for man to be saved than to believe by faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that God the Father sent him to save sinners, and that Jesus willingly came. He lived a sinless life, and he willingly went to the cross to die in a sinner's place. When that sinner recognizes that he's their only hope, Jesus died in my place. God, the righteous Father, poured all of the wrath he has for every one of my sins. He poured it out on Jesus on the cross. Every single last drop. And because of Jesus taking that, in me putting my hope in Him alone, I'm not condemned anymore. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. There's hope. There's hope for living a godly life. It's not a standard to achieve, but a place to rest from. A solid ground point to always come back to and say, I'm right with God because of what Jesus did for me. And I want to live for Him. I want to walk in the works He's called me to. Not that I can be right before Him from works, but because I want to glorify Him. I want people to see Christ in me. I want them to look at me and ask, why are you so hopeful in this fallen world? What's going on with you? 
And I want to tell them the good news. The reason I'm hopeful is because of what Christ has done. Oh, am I ashamed of Him? Will I deny Him? And that brings us to today. We are finally at perspective three. How does one look at, am I ashamed of Jesus? Will I deny Him? From a concerned unbeliever's perspective, they must see their sin. They must know they need saved. From a pretending, deceived believer, someone who thinks they're really saved and they're good to go, yet when they stand before God, he's going to say, I never knew you. That person must understand they've got to examine their life. They say that they're saved. What evidence, what fruit is there in their life that justifies that in their mind? And it's not by justifying by, oh, look at all the things I've done. Because we got a clear picture in the Word. That's what those people will do. On that day of judgment, they're going to go back to works. They're going to say, look what all I've done, look what I've done, look what I've done. And that's that's garbage. That's filthy rags. There's no hope. No man will be justified by works. Cannot happen. The only way you can be justified right before a righteous holy God is by faith and believing that Jesus paid the debt. Jesus lived a life I could not. I put my soul, trust, and hope, and faith, and believe in Him. I believe that He was the Savior that God sent. I believe He died in my place. I believe He was buried. I believe He rose again on the third day. I believe that. I believe that more than anything. I believe that more than the air I'm breathing in my lungs. I believe that more than what my eye is seeing out that door. I believe that more than what hearing is coming in my ears. I believe that more than whatever touch I can have through my senses. I believe this more than anything, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and He saved me. There's nothing more real to me than this. Is that where you're at? Is that where you're at? If you are, praise God, because that is the foundation of hope. That, that is the believer's cornerstone from which the good works we're called to do are built. That's the meat we got to get past the milk, but we got to get the milk right. We've got to get these essential things right. So when the deceiver comes into a believer's life, which he will, and falsely accuses you, and you will not slip into that realm of self-justification by works, you will say, no, Satan, I'm justified by faith in Jesus alone. Depart from me. You can put him in his place, and you can walk with God. That's what we must have. But this perspective we're going to look at is from a humble, repentant believer. Okay? This is where we're at. So we're, we're transitioning from someone who is under the law. They are condemned because the law proves that they're sinful and there's no hope through the law other than pointing them to Christ. But then if they don't accept the reality that their only hope is through Christ, they're stuck. They are condemned. They are without hope. Okay? We're not there right now. We are moving on. By the grace of God, we're talking about an individual who understands the depth of their sin. They understand there is no hope. There never will be any hope for me 
in this life to be right before God apart from placing my hope in Jesus alone. And that is a rock I will not be moved from. I shall not be moved. Man, those kids, those songs, if they would just, I shall not be, I shall not be moved. That's the rock, right? We can't get off that rock. If you do, everything else is sinking sand, right? So we're at that place right now. What about that believer? Have you been here? Have you been in your life where if someone is, as a Christian, you came up and you say, hey, you say you're a Christian. Are you, are you ashamed of Jesus? Have you ever denied Jesus? So that's my question I want to start with. Do the people around you know that you are a Christian? And I, let's be more specific, okay? Because in this day and age, Christian is such a broad term. So many people claim to be a Christian. Specifically, are you a follower of Jesus? I think that simplifies it, but I think it also, it really narrows it to what it has to be. To be a Christian is to be a Christ follower, a disciple, right? One who follows after Jesus. Do people know that about you? And I'm not only talking about your family. Does does your family know that you're a, a follower of Jesus? Although family often sees and bears the brunt of our battle with the flesh, don't they? Hmm. Hey, you call yourself a Christian. Look what, right? It happens in thoughts and households. Yes, let's be real, right? Now, if that household was structured and walking as God has called it to, then there wouldn't be that, <laughs> look what you can. It would be, I love you. And it's because of the love that I have for you, and I see my own weaknesses. I see honestly that sometimes... It's my weaknesses that's causing your stumbling right now. But there could be that real conversation. That would be uplifting to both, to all in the house. I'm not only talking about friends, you know, those individuals you feel you can let your guard down around and just be yourself. It's nice to be having friends like that. But I'm also talking about your coworkers and those random people that the Lord brings in and out of your sphere throughout the day. Do those people know that you are a Christian? That you are a follower of Jesus? Now, if anyone in that realm, if anybody in your family, if anybody in your friendships, if anybody in your coworkers or individuals that God brings into into your life throughout the day, if there's anybody in those spheres that don't know that you're a Christian, could it be that you're ashamed of him? Could it be that maybe in some conversations you've had that you've openly denied him? Could it be? And see, at this point, because I know the individuals I'm talking to are believers, individuals who have the Holy Spirit that guides them, that that convicts them, that, that prompts them, I'm trusting in the Spirit 
to do a work that I can't do right now. I'm trusting the Spirit to bring those conversations to your mind. Maybe with some friends that you've had and conversations you've had or conversations you've had within your family, conversations you've had at work, or the different way you've acted and displayed yourself in any one of those spheres. Have you conducted yourself in a manner that could be seen as being ashamed of Jesus or outright denying him? And right now, I mean, you might find yourself dealing with condemnation. And I'm just telling you right now, God does not condemn you because we were reminded this morning that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Is that right? If we move away from that, we're in trouble. Okay? A believer in a believer's life, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? Because Christ Jesus paid it all on the cross. Okay? Now, I want to be real careful, and I meant to make a point of this before I started. If you are still a concerned unbeliever, if you are a deceived, pretending believer, what I'm talking about right now is not for you. Okay? I don't want to give you any false sense of security or hope and that everything's good between you and God. If you aren't of the humbleness of understanding your desperate need for Christ, then you cannot rest in the promises that he gives. Okay? So I'm talking to believers right now. I'm talking to believers that that honestly are so concerned with their walk that they are concerned about how they've acted. And when they've done something that's a poor reflection of Christ, it bothers them. Do you know that that bothering is not a bad thing? Huh? It's the goodness of God that would draw us back as believers to repentance. Amen? It's His goodness that draws us back to repentance in those moments. So, we're examining because we're called to and because we need to. And we're looking at, in our lives as believers, am I ashamed of Jesus? Am I, am I going to deny am I denying him? And some people might take it to the, to the very extreme, and you should. What if the last moments of my life, if God has me in such a persecution, you think of it, let it come to your mind, whatever it might be, gallows, firing squad, torture, whatever, okay? If God has that in store for me, Am I going to deny Jesus? Whatever they do to my body, am I going to deny Him? Am I going to be ashamed of my Savior in those moments? Do you ever have thoughts like that? Do you ever wonder about that? Do you know where Christ said whenever He called Saul on the road to Damascus, and he was talking to Ananias and saying, hey, this guy, he is, he's, he's over here and he's, um, he's had a vision that, that a guy named Ananias is going to come lay hands on him and he's going to be able to see again. And, and Ananias was like, well, he's this guy that he was persecuting all these Jews and now he's come up here and he's got these orders he can persecute more. And, and like Ananias is going, what are you doing, God? But he said, Jesus said, he's mine. He is my vessel. I'm going to use him. I'm going to use him to proclaim the gospel. 
I'm going to use this man to, to just proclaim the good news of me to the Gentiles. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm so thankful for that. And then, so, but he told Ananias, and I've shown him all the things that he's going to have to struggle with for me. Has God done that in your life? I'm not morbid when I'm telling you that there may come a time in our walk with God that persecution takes on a whole other realm than what we're accustomed to in this country. And we'd better wake up and be ready. And I'm not, I'm not talking about just call to arms and prevent ourselves from ever being at a point in a position like that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we'd better be examining ourselves constantly, looking at our walk with God, looking at where we're placing our hope and our trust, looking at where we're building our faith. What are we doing in preparation for what God has? Not only for the good works that he's called us to, with the individuals that he places us around, but also consider what if God's good work for you is how he takes you home? At that moment, will I deny Jesus? If there's such unbearable pain to such an extent, if if one of my family members is collateral to my actions, what will I do? This is real. If we're talking about living life by faith, these thoughts are real. And we need to wrestle with them. And I'm here to tell you where hope is found. And it's not in and of yourself. It's not me mustering up enough strength to just grit my teeth and whatever, whatever. That's not it. That is not it. Okay, and we're gonna, we're gonna be reminded of that this morning, and we are gonna rest in that together this morning, and we're gonna be, we're gonna see hope together in this this morning. Are you with me? Okay, so, when you think of a follower of Jesus denying him, now, adults, just, when you think of a follower of Jesus that denied him, what individual comes to mind? Kids anywhere. Judas was used to betray Jesus. Who was the individual that said, Peter? He said, I'll never deny you, right? Let's go to that. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. We are given a prime example here, all right? And let me tell you this, the focus is not Peter, all right? Here we go. Luke 22, 31 through 34. And the Lord said to Simon, Simon Peter, Okay, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I, and this is before Christ was crucified, obviously. Okay, this is, this is out in the garden, uh, Gethsemane, is that right? I think, and in preparation, Jesus knows he's about to be arrested. He's about to go through the process that, that, that he knows he's going to have to go through and, and, uh, being, um, beaten, being um, whipped, uh, clothes being torn, thorn, crown of thorns, okay, being mocked, all these, all these things, 
which are physical, which hurt, which are really painful, but that is nothing. That is nothing compared to what Jesus was going to endure on the cross in taking the wrath for sin. Okay, let's never lose sight of that. So, all that Jesus knows, okay? This is what's coming, and what's what's the heart of Christ? Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And I think Brother Kenny has a really good picture of that in his mind. Sift you as wheat. But, Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he, Peter, said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Okay? We're talking about denial. Denial of a believer. Denial of someone walking with Jesus. Okay? Now, can you think of anything more reassuring to Peter than Jesus saying that he prayed for him? But you know what? I think, I think Peter missed it. Right? Jesus said, I prayed for you. And then Peter goes, What I'm gonna get I'm going with you, Jesus. You know, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna It appeared that Peter missed the peace he could have had before his trial of denying Jesus. Wouldn't it be reassuring to know that Jesus prays for us as well? Wouldn't that be reassuring? We're gonna talk about that a little bit later. Okay, so let's focus back on Peter here. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. Christ has told Peter, you're going to deny me, but I've prayed for you. Okay, now we're up to the point where this is happening. Verse 54, chapter 2, verse 54 through 62. Having arrested him, Jesus, so Jesus was arrested, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the country of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. So he's, he's in a group of people outside. And a certain servant girl, seeing him, seeing Peter as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him. That's quite the picture, right? Really looking at Peter. Going, hmm, I've seen that guy before. And then she said, this man was, was also with him. But Peter denied it saying, woman, I don't, I do not know him. And after a while, a little while, another, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour passed, another confidently affirmed saying, surely this man also was with him for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Catch this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept. Bitterly. This is the thing that struck me this morning. Because I've heard this. I mean, we've heard this, right? We've, we've, we've looked at this scene before. 
But this is what struck me this morning. What do you think that look from Jesus was like towards Peter? That was the thought that came. Have you, have you considered that? What do you think that look from Jesus was like toward Peter? Do you think Jesus looked in disappointment toward him? Was it a look of betrayal? I believe Christ looked toward Peter in love. The same love that Jesus had when he prayed to the Father that Peter's faith wouldn't fail. And I believe that is the sole reason why Peter's faith didn't fail. Because Jesus prayed for him. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Right? Brothers and sisters, just like other believers that have gone before us, we will be called to face and endure trials in this life. We will, but fear not. We have a Savior who has prayed for us and is still interceding for us before God the Father. Now, I I was like, man, is this going to be too long? So I was going to try to cut stuff out. We're going to read Christ's high priestly prayer together, okay? I We're going to, and it's good. And I, I just, this is the Savior praying to God the Father. You can see his heart. You see his heart all the time and how he displays himself, how he conducts himself in his ministry on this earth. But then right here, I think this high priestly prayer, they call it, I think we'll, we'll have an eternity to examine the depth and riches of what this is. Okay, we're going to read through this together. John 17, 1 through 26. Is everyone doing okay? Okay. So first, I'm going to break this down. Christ is going to be praying to the Father for himself. Then Jesus is going to be praying about his disciples. And then he's going to be praying about future believers. Okay? And I want to start, this is not how we're going to do it up on the screen, but I want to start with reading the part where Christ is talking about future believers. Okay? And this is what it says, starting in verse 20. It says, Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, these disciples of mine. I don't only just pray for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. These disciples are going to go out and spread the gospel. And the gospel message is going to be received by people who've been convicted of sin, who are convinced that there's no hope apart from Christ. And these future believers are going to put their, their whole faith and hope in Jesus Christ by faith alone. Jesus is praying for those individuals. Okay? Who is that? Do you grasp that? You might have been thinking, man, right before Jesus endured all this crucifixion and everything, he was thinking of Peter, and he pulled Peter aside, and he said, Peter, Satan's wanting you, but I prayed for your faith that you, it won't fail. And you might be thinking, man, man, Peter's lucky. Do you see that it's Jesus did the same for you? He prayed for you. What a savior. So we gotta we gotta look at that from the perspective because when we get into what Jesus is praying for his disciples about, we're in there. Okay, the things that he, he was praying for the disciples about, it applies to us. A lot of it does, okay? But first, let's start just with Jesus speaking to the Father. Chapter 17, here we go. 
Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may be may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, Jesus has all authority, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. That Jesus Christ, are you catching this? That he, that Jesus, should give eternal life to as many, give eternal life to who? To as many as you, the Father, have given him. Hello? Salvation is of God. Do you see it? This is not anything that we can boast in. When we were talking earlier about faith being a gift from God, it's a gift because God the Father gave the Son those who would be saved. And He grants them the gift of faith. It's a wondrous thing. I don't, we cannot grasp it, but we must just marvel at the plan of salvation that God has. You have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus has authority over all flesh that he, Jesus, should give eternal life to as many as you, the Father, have given him. And this is eternal life. (laughs) What's eternal life? That they may know you. That That we may know God. It's not just, oh, hey, we get to live forever and I'm going to do whatever I want for all eternity. That's not eternal life. That's a warped perspective. What's the right perspective from Jesus Christ defining it? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's eternal life, that we might know God the Father, that we might know the Son that He sent. That's eternal life. I, Jesus said, have glorified you, Father, on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. He lived that sinless life of obedience. Even where it talks about in the Word about how he learned obedience, the Son of God. Now that's a picture, right? That's a picture. I finished the work you've given me to do, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. God, I know what's coming. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You talk about the humility of the Emmanuel, the Savior, leaving the realms of glory and wonder, humbling himself, taking upon flesh in the form of a babe in a manger. Do we even approach grasping the humility of that? And Christ saying, I've lived my life here on earth. I have finished the work, Father, you've called me to. Now glorify me again back to the place where I was, where I had glory before I came. What a wondrous Savior. What a wondrous Savior. And then Jesus changes. He he shifts his focus. Now he's praying for his disciples. Now as you read this, again, he is specifically talking about the 12 that God had given him. Okay, minus the one, and he'll mention that. But there's things he's praying for them about that apply to us as believers. See if you catch it. I have manifested your name, Father, to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, these men that you gave me, these disciples. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. They recognize that everything that I, it's from you, God, Father, it's from you. They recognize that. Do we see that? 
as believers, do we recognize that? For I have given to them the words which you have given me. All the truth that Christ preached to them and spoke to them about. And they have received those words and have have known surely that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Do you see faith there? Do you see it? They have believed, Father, that, that you sent me. They believe that. They have faith in me that I am the Son of God. They believe that. That's us too, right? I pray for them. He's praying for his disciples. Catch this line. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Whoa. Whoa. Unmerited favor. I do not pray for the world, Jesus says, but I pray for the ones you've given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world. He knows what's coming. He's about to leave, right? But he says, but they are in the world. And I come to you. Can you see this? What's about to take place? What Jesus' heart? I come to you. Listen to what he says here. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Did you catch that? Jesus is praying for his disciples. And he's praying that that God the Father would keep those men through his through through the Father's name, keep them that, that God the Father had given them, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Judas, right, Michael? That the scripture might be fulfilled. That was foretold, right? It was prophesied that the scripture might be fulfilled. I kept all of them except for the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants us to have his joy. Are we living like that? That's what Christ prayed for. Oh, I want that. Don't you want that? The joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Is that a foreign concept to us? I want that. I want the joy of the Lord. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. How's our walk? Does the world distinguish us any differently than every other non-believer around us? Ouch. That is not earning salvation. I'm not talking about that. Okay? I'm talking about are we living a life in such a manner that people see us and they see something different in us than all the other worldly people around us? They should. 
This is not a guilt trip. This is a wake-up call. Okay? Because as believers, we can be lulled to sleep. Can't we? We can be lulled to sleep by false idols. Things that we think are so important. And then we pour all of our effort, all of our emotion, all of our resources into junk. Whatever it is, something that's going to perish, something that's going to burn, and we need to wake up. We need that. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here we go again. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, the one who created it all, the one who holds all things together by his power, he prays that the Father would keep us from the evil one. Mm. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. What is that? Your word is truth. Oh, Father, sanctify them by your word. That's so essential, right? As you sent me into the world... I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now he's going to be talking to future believers. Jesus is praying for you here, believer. We're talking to to believers right now. We're talking to ones who know that apart from Christ, they are without hope. It's only by faith that they're justified, by believing in the Son, by Him being the Son of God, not by works. I can't be justified by works. It's totally by faith. Yet I'm called to live and walk in good works that the Father's prepared. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. He's praying for you, believer. He's praying for you. I do not pray for these alone, these disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. The closeness. The closeness. Being unified with God, the Father, with God, the Son. That the world may believe that you sent me. So even... The way we portray ourselves should be a witness. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. What? Father, the glory that you gave me, I am giving them. Those who would believe in me in the future. He is giving us the glory that God the Father gave Jesus. that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you, Father, and me, that they may be made perfect into one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. God the Father, that we might know that he loves us like he loves the Son, like he loves his beloved son that he sent to die on the cross, that we might know that he loves us. How often do we question God's love? 
How often do we have misthoughts, misguided, misdirected thoughts about the love of the Father towards us? What is the truth? The truth is, as a, as a born again believer that the Son has purchased or pardoned by the sacrifice of His blood, as a born again believer, the love of the Father is the same as He has for the Son. His love is the same towards us as His love towards the Son. How? How? How marvelous. How wonderful. Verse 24, Father, he didn't, he's not done yet. He's still praying for us. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Jesus wants us to be with him. And that they may behold my glory, Jesus says, which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. Do we know? Do we know? Do we know that the Father sent Jesus? Do we know? Is this you? We know that they have, that you have sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Brothers and sisters, in the moment of tribulation and persecution, don't fear being ashamed of or denying Jesus. Our God is faithful. Okay? We're drawing this back to what about at that point in my life, whatever the tribulation may be, whatever comes, God, I don't want to be ashamed of you. I don't want to deny you. In my flesh, I'm weak. In our flesh, we are weak. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is in Him. Hebrews 13, verse 6. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Oh, that God would just affirm that in our heart. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the boldness that the Spirit provides at the time of need. Amen? This is the boldness that the Spirit provides at the time of need. Remember how God used Stephen to testify before the authorities. We're not going to read that whole account. We're going to be, we're going to read a part of it though. Luke chapter 12 verses 11 and 12. This is setting that up because we should wrestle with that thought. What's going to happen in a, in a big fiery trial that comes? Am I going to even know what to do? Am I going to know what to say? Am I going to know how to respond? God, I don't want to bring shame to you. I don't want to bring dishonor upon your name. God, help me. Listen. Verse 11 and 12. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Peace. Does that, does that mean neglect your entire walk with God? No. That means as you're seeking Him and as He is in His mercy showing more and more the depth of your sin and you're seeing more and more of your depth of need for Him, in those moments, it's not to cause you um, fear of what's going to happen. 
because of my weaknesses. I see how weak I am, God. I see it. I see it. God will be there. God will be there. How do you know? Because he's done it. Listen to the faithfulness of God in Stephen's time of need. Acts chapter 7, 51 through 60. You guys, if you've not done it in a while, you've got to go back and read Stephen's testimony about him just talking about what God has done. And, and it's just building up, it's building up, it's building up. And it's like we're jumping in right at the crescendo, okay, right here at the very top. Listen to what he says. You talk about boldness in time of need, okay? This is Stephen. The Spirit, let me clarify, the Spirit of God speaking through Stephen. Okay? A willing vessel that the Lord is using. Do you see it? Here we go. We're going to jump right in. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. So these are these are the the religious elite right now, right? And Stephen's just taking it to them. You you always do as your fathers did. Which the prophets, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, which is Jesus, right? This is after this is after the crucifixion. This is after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is after uh, the dispersal where everyone kind of, the the believers were dispersed, and they're going out telling the good news to all the different places. And Stephen's here, and he's saying, which of, the, which of the prophets didn't your fathers persecute? They killed them all. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. You, you now, you're a part of killing the just one. Okay? who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, when these religious people heard this, it says they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, do you see it in the time of need? Being full of the Holy Spirit, oh, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. In the time of need, the Spirit came and the heavens were opened and Stephen saw the Son of God by the Father. And he's saying this, I see it. And these people are going crazy. It's like blasphemy, blasphemy. What do they do? Then they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they ran at Stephen with one accord and they cast him out in the city and they stoned him. Oh God, will I, am I going to be ashamed of you? Am I going to deny you? Here's a believer. The Spirit showed up. It says they took him out. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. The instrument that we talked about earlier that God was going to use, the vessel that God was going to blind on the road to Damascus, he's going to say, he's mine, I'm going to use him to proclaim the gospel. Okay, All these angry people laid their coats down at the feet of Saul because he was there, he saw this. And it says, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, Stephen knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, vengeance, Lord, give me vengeance. Is that what he said? No, listen to what he said. He said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. 
And when he said this, he fell asleep. God's going to be there. Our God is faithful. He was faithful to Stephen. He was faithful to Noah. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac. He was faithful to Jacob. He was faithful to Joseph. He was faithful to Moses. He is faithful to the Wiltburgers. He is faithful to the Seberts. He is faithful to the Millers. He is faithful to the Bickles. He is faithful to the Smiths. He is faithful to the Pierces. He is faithful to the LeBrons. He is faithful to Lisa. He is faithful to the Smallins. He is faithful to the Petersons. He is faithful to the Sappingtons. He is faithful to the Saleses. He is faithful to Wilma. He is faithful to Donna. He is faithful to Debbie. He is faithful to the Detmers. Brothers and sisters, we have no cause to doubt. We have no cause to despair. We have no cause to fear. We have no cause to be ashamed of Jesus. We have no cause to deny Him. He is faithful. Whatever comes, He is faithful. Ephesians 6, 10-18. Just a reminder, because we forget... We forget where our struggle truly is. And we take it out on each other. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, brothers and sisters, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of that reality, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. In the evil day. Whatever that day is, whenever that day comes, be equipped, be ready, stand on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ and stand. 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 Not in your strength, but in the strength that He supplies. Why? For His glory. It's for His glory. Having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, tell the good news. Above all, take the shield of faith. Faith. Do you believe? By faith alone, take the, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And they are coming. They will come. Be equipped. Be ready. Don't be naive to the enemy's schemes. The one who seeks to kill and destroy. Who? Believers. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. Jesus talked about that in His prayer. Sanctify them by your Word. By the truth. Your truth is the Word, right? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication 
for all the saints. For all the saints. Stop living for yourself. Stop being so consumed with what you want. Stop being so concerned when you get your feelings hurt. Live for others. And if others are living for others, they're living for you. And then when your feelings are hurt, love is going to cover it. And I'm just going to end with the verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 13 and 6. We as believers, as we struggle with the question of, am I ashamed of Jesus? Will I deny him? Brothers and sisters, it is not our strength. It is believing and trusting that God will show up in that great time of need. He will show up. He has shown up. We've seen it in his word. He is faithful. Amen? Verse 6. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for showing up. Thank you, God. I know it's you. I know it is. Because I know how pitiful I was early this morning at that table in the gazebo going, I am done. (laughs) But God, your work is so good. And I pray, Father, that that it impacts lives today. That I pray that it has not fallen on deaf ears. I pray that it has not um, fallen on thorny ground, hardened ground. I pray that it has fallen on soil and a soul that you've prepared. And that seed will be received into that heart. And that, that God, you would perform a miracle of faith to a new believer. That they would see that apart from you, Jesus, there is no hope. There is no other way. And then that you would help us as believers to walk by faith and not by sight. Keep us from falling into the ditch of self-justification through works, but also protect us from the complacency of not living anything for you, God. We want to walk in the good works you prepared for us. Please help us. Help us to know your love, Father. Please help us to know the love that you have for us as you have for the Son. It's real. Help us to be a loving people. Help us to be a loving church. Help us not to fear. Help us to live by faith. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to put on the armor. Remind us of how important it is. The spiritual disciplines that we're called to not to be justified by, but to be helped by. Help us to pray to you more. Help us to read your Bible more. Help us to gather more and encourage one another more. Help us to be real and humble when we need correction through your spirit of another. God, we just... We want to be more like Jesus. We want to know Jesus more. And Jesus, I'm so glad you long for us to be with you where you go. 
I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad, Jesus, that you want us to see your glory. It's coming. That day is coming. May there be an ever-increasing hunger and thirst to be there with you and to be able to rest in knowing that that day is coming, but then not to waste the time that we have now to walk by faith. Help us not to waste that time right now where we can build our faith, we can strengthen our faith, we can share our faith, God. Help us. Help us not to waste it. I thank you, God. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. And I thank you for your plans and for your works that you have prepared. Help us walk in them, please. As a church, as a family, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.